This is Invest Talk. Independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Wednesday, October 25th, 2023 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and it is a Wednesday, and that means we have Luke Guerrero back with us. Thanks for being here, Luke. Thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah, now, uh, today is just another step that we plan to make with you towards your journey towards financial freedom. And everyone's journey is different. And everyone's path is different based on where they start, where their end goals are. Uh, But the environment around us, all of us, is the same. And so there are principles that can be applied to navigate this environment uh, successfully. And we are entering a phase, in my mind, we're entering kind of the first popping of a sovereign debt bubble, major sovereign debt bubble, uh, in 100 years. And so this... Brings new challenges, new opportunities as well. It's not all bad. It's just different. And so our job is to usher you through this period. And we're going to talk about the market performance today. We're going to run down some show topics. But right after we answer this first caller question. Hello, Steve, Justin, and Luke. Um, This is Art from Tucson. And I am calling about Zebra Technologies Corporation, Z-B-R-A. It's way down and uh, wondering where would be a good time to buy it, at what price. I'll listen on a podcast. Thanks for all you do for us. All right, Luke, Zebra, this is uh, one of the largest names within the RFID space. And that's what they make. They make uh, direct thermal and thermal transfer printers, RFID printers, encoders, and card printers. So uh, they're in a, a, in, a, in a niche, but it's a niche they're very successful at. Uh, Luke, why don't you give the listeners a rundown of their profitability metrics and how kind of consistent that tends to be over time? Yeah, of course. So their margins are well above their competition. Their even margin, 16%. One thing that is flagging for me is their long-term debt to equity is hovering around 73%. Now you'll notice this is a a small to mid cap company. Small and mid cap companies have been suffering over the past couple of weeks as we've been dealing with the increasing cost of debt financing. And it seems to be that Zebra was not immune from this drawdown. Yeah. And I think that debt to equity is kind of a little bit off because that they've been doing instead of retaining a lot of earnings, they've been buying back shares. Um, and so, you know, it looks like they only have about two and a half billion dollars in net debt on. Uh, and, and their free cash flow is about, what, $146 million? So I think that's the issue, is that their free cash flow has fallen from a peak in September of 2021 of $1.2 billion, trailing 12 months, and now it's at $146 million. So uh, do you think there's just margin compression here? What do you think is causing this big drop in that cash flow metric? 
Yeah, it could be margin compression. Uh, I'm seeing that most of their debt is pushed out to 2027, so that's not really an issue I see. But certainly uh, in terms of where the market is uh, perceiving that this company's cash flow is going, I mean, its revenues are supposed to decrease consistently over the next four quarters, and and the chart is reacting uh, in line with that. Yeah, and I think that's the issue is when can they kind of pull out of this really large cut in their earnings. Last year, they made $17.47. This year, they're only supposed to make $9.74. So nearly a 50% drop in earnings expectations this year. So let's go back up to $11.44 next year and, and stabilize. And if it can, if its business can stabilize, which it should, because it does have a strong history of uh, stable growth and, and cash flows, uh, then I think this will turn around. From a technical perspective, it's definitely weak, but major support is coming in around 180. Now we're just shy of 200, just below 200 right now. Um, so there could be a little more downside, but I do think we're getting close to a good long-term buy if you have confidence that their business will right-size itself and or, or mean revert itself back to its long-term growth. All right. That was Zebra. I do think it is a good buy around that 180 level. All right. We have a lot of cover in the next 45 minutes. And our main focus point looks in the story set up by this question. Is the geopolitical climate too risky to short long-term treasury bonds? I'll talk about shorting bonds, long-term treasury bonds, bond yields and interest rates, inflationary expectations, and of course, how this all works with the current geopolitical climate. And that's our main focus point. We have other topics on the docket as well. One is in regards to clean energy stocks. They're down. The major iShares Global Clean Energy ETF is down 32% this year. And we're going to talk about why that is. A lot of people will say, hey, we just passed the Inflation Reduction Act. These companies should be doing fantastic. Well, they're not. And that means there's other factors that are playing at play here. So we're going to dig into that. Also, a lot of people just set and forget their 401k. And the big question is, is that going to be a great strategy going forward? Think of your targeted funds or just buying one fund and never looking at it. Okay, so we're going to look at uh, the data there. And then lastly, GM is scaling back their plans for EV production. We're going to talk about why that is and what's that could mean for the car market and the adjacent companies that uh, supply to the car market as well. All right, so that's what's on the docket for us. We also have some voice bank questions. One is in regards to bonds and the other is NVR. Now let's look at the market today. Luke, big down day, mainly driven by the, the tech stocks. And that was mainly driven by Google. That was down or I guess you call it alphabet, 9.6% there. You had Tesla down a little, uh, almost 2%. Amazon down 5.5%. Uh, Microsoft was the loan positive within the tech space, up 3%. But clearly, this was a risk-off day and a move out of those mega-cap tech names as we really get deeper into this earnings season. 
Yeah, you're exactly right. But it wasn't just mega cap tech names that were down. The Russell 2000, so small caps, was down 1.65% as well with treasury yields reapproaching that 5% yield on the 10-year. I think the one bright spot you can get from Google or Alphabet's earnings, rather, is that their ad business actually still did pretty well. So a lot of the negative surprise you saw out of Alphabet earnings was actually with their cloud computing segment, which had lower than expected earnings. Yeah, and that's what was the bright spot for Microsoft was their cloud computing area. So clearly, Microsoft's investment in ChatGPT uh, certainly helped them in the quarter. Now, what's interesting to note is that Microsoft was up early in the day, and it did fade. It still ended up about 3%, but it, it didn't get a continuation rally throughout the day. That's probably because the broader sector was being weighed upon. Uh, and it also didn't reach new highs. The high was still in mid-July, right around $366 per share. We're at $340 at the close today. So uh, we'll be, it'll be interesting to see if that can continue to kind of build on this, uh, this earnings report and reach new highs, or is it going to suffer the fate of Google? And that now broke below the 100-day moving average, and its technicals are now in a downtrend. And Amazon. Amazon didn't have earnings, but that was down 5.5%. What do you think was the catalyst for Amazon being down so much? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure because from an economic perspective, I mean, new home sales was reported. There was a positive surprise of 79000 So from a consumer spending perspective, things from an economic uh, reporting data side looked positive today. So I think right. overall that was probably just tied to the overall to the to the sector broadly being dragged down. Yeah. And like you said, the 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 housing number was pretty good, better than expected. But tomorrow we get a lot of data. We get things like let me pull it up here. I know we get the initial jobless claims data that's coming out tomorrow. That's a that's a weekly series, so that that's very common. It's been hovering around that two hundred thousand mark, uh, and it'll be interesting to see if that gets an acceleration to the upside. Uh, we also get durable goods new orders. That's a big factor. Everyone's going to pay attention to the GDP report for the third quarter, but that's backwards looking. I don't really look at that. Pending home sales will come out tomorrow. Total vehicle sales. So a really a, a Kansas City Fed manufacturing production index. All of this that is really under, really showing what the economy is doing uh, kind of near term. And I think that will be a, a big mover for tomorrow. And I think the last big m movement day potential uh, until we get to the Fed meeting. Actually, we have the PCE on Friday as well. That's going to be big. So the next couple of days in the markets will be interesting. All right, as we head to the break, let me tell you about the new Invest Talk Sector Spotlight series. And the newest episode is on real estate. And the sector today is much different than it was back in 08. A lot of people are using that playbook, thinking we're getting forced selling in the markets, and the answer is the exact opposite. People are locked in, and they're getting forced holding in a lot of ways. Forced and holders. so that's forced holders, and that's why the real estate market is a bit trickier than most people uh, can handle at, the, at this point, and they're wondering what's going to happen. So head over to our YouTube channel and check out the Invest Talk Sector Spotlight on real estate. Now, the phone lines are open, waiting for your questions at 888-99-CHART. Get ready for the next Invest Talk Wealth Webinar. Profit amidst chaos. Strategic investing in a recession. The Wealth Webinar will be presented online and free of charge. But you have to register in advance to reserve your spot. Which sectors tend to soar and which plummet during economic downturns? 
With the right strategies, you can safeguard your investments and also seize unique opportunities. So join Invest Talk hosts Justin Klein and Luke Guerrero of KPP Financial as they take you through the maze of mysteries involved with investing in times of recession. Tell your friends about the next Invest Talk Wealth Webinar. It's happening live, online, and free Thursday, November 9th from 1 to 2 p.m. Pacific Time. Go to investtalk.com and register now. The stock market is volatile. It's constantly changing. So how are you positioned? Is your portfolio properly balanced or are you taking unnecessary risks? You can get guidance anytime for free if you go to investtalk.com and take the brief Riskalyze quiz. This is Brandon in Northern Virginia. So I was just curious what you thought of the home building sector. Um, in particular, I'm looking at NBR Homes. I'll look forward to hearing your answer later on. Thank you. Now, real estate or home builders had a strong rally early in the year uh, and even last fall was when it started and that bucked the narrative that housing was falling apart. And we rode uh, in our managed accounts, uh, DR Horton, or not, sorry, it wasn't DR Horton, it's Pulte was the one that we rode uh, higher. And, but we recently got out of it. I would say recently, I would say a few months ago near the peak and the whole sector's kind of rolled over. So I, and then today, like we talked about at the top of the show, the new home sales report was better than expected, but you didn't get a rally in the home builders. And that is a, that is a worrying sign. When you get good news out of a sector and it doesn't rally, that's kind of the broader market telling you something. And I think that's what's happening here is uh, those we're finally at a level to where mortgage rates are a problem for not just the existing home market, but the new home market. And then I think it's also a signal that the underlying economy and labor market is weakening. Remember, the labor market is one of the last things to weaken. And so it's, uh, it tends to uh, show strength until the very end before that recession. So I think you're getting a, a bit of sniffing out there uh, within the home builder market. Now, NVR, this is a great example. It's trading for $5,377 per share. And Luke, a lot of people look at that number and say, that's way too expensive. Is it too expensive at these levels? Well, if you're looking at stocks based upon their price, then you don't really understand what it means to hold a stock. But yeah. looking at it relative to its average levels over the last five years is actually pretty reasonably priced. Its price to book is four versus its five-year average of five. Its price to earnings is 12 relative to its five-year average of 14. Now, that can be skewed because you got to think about how many people were using the things they were saving uh, during the pandemic to buy homes, right? Yeah. So just the way the housing market was over the past five years could skew that figure. But I do agree with you that it is a worrying sign that even with new home sales, the broader sector did not do well. Yeah, and earnings this year is supposed to drop 8% and 4% next year. So what you're looking at are a little bit backwards uh, looking data. And if going forward, you're gonna have earnings uh, decline a little bit, then maybe it's more, I think, in line with those longer term averages going forward, looking forward. Um, so I would say it's not cheap or expensive at these levels. It's one of the better home builders. I will say that. I like that you're, you're ignoring that big sticker price of $4,377 per share, and you're looking at the quality of the business. So it is a good 
good company to invest in, I think, longer term. But near term, I will hold off on NBR and the other home builders. All right, we're going to a quick break. Please remember that you can call anytime and leave your question on the Invest Talk Voice Bank. If you're listening via our live stream or on AM 1220 radio in Silicon Valley area, you can call now at 888 chart You've got finance and investment questions, and Justin Klein and Steve Peasley are ready with their unbiased answers. Don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Now, our focus point looks in the story set up by this question. Is the geopolitical climate too risky to short long-term treasury bonds? And one high-profile fund manager, hedge fund manager, believes that investors may increasingly buy bonds as a safe haven asset because of growing geopolitical risk. And so he... Earlier this ye- this year, actually just in August, not that long ago, he was saying he's shorting bonds, more specifically long-term treasury bonds, because bond yields and interest rates were too high, or too low, excuse me, for uh, the economic backdrop and the where, the where the Fed was promising rates to go and policy to go. Now, since then, inflation expectations have come down a little bit. They're still bouncing around. And obviously, the geopolitical climate continues to ramp up to worrying levels. And this hedge fund manager is Bill Ackman. Now, Luke, what do you think of Bill Ackman? He's a controversial figure within the hedge fund community or in the investment community. What are your thoughts? Well, he famously failed at shorting Herbalife into dust. True, which I I know you're not happy about. I think a lot of people aren't happy about it. But I mean, it makes sense, right? So people tend to buy U.S. treasuries as a flight to safety trade. So if you think that the geopolitical environment is such that there are some risks out there that could affect stock markets and and have people have that flight to safety, then there's too much risk to short it. I mean, he the, the, the yields moved with his trade. He made his money. And it seems like it would be too risky to keep those shorts open. Yeah, there's always a risk versus reward that you look at for every investment. And so after a large move like this makes sense that maybe the uh, upside risk in yields is not nearly as attractive as it was uh, just a few months ago when the 10 year was right around 4%. Now we're at 5%. So uh, maybe hit its target. And he says there's too much risk in the world to remain short bonds at current long-term rates. And, you know, I, the only thing I would say about this is, Will treasuries or the demand for treasuries as a safe haven be overwhelmed by the treasury supply coming out of our treasury, right? By issuing so much debt, our deficit continues to balloon. And with now rates on the short end at 5% or across the curve, right around 5% or higher, every week, every month, that those interest costs go up. And it doesn't seem like anybody in government wants to lower spending to any degree and therefore could a pullback in rates even with a problem geopolitically be more mild than it has been in the past well i saw a chart earlier which showed the uh, risk premium associated with emerging market bonds relative to u.s treasuries and it shows that 
over the past short term, it's pretty much disappeared. So even though historically speaking, pension funds and and asset managers hold historic level of treasuries, I don't necessarily buy into the idea that the treasury demand will disappear in such a way that that trade doesn't act like it does normally. Well, I don't think it's that that disappears. It's that it's overwhelmed, right? You have the same amount, but if your size of supply overwhelms the demand, then prices go down, right? Yeah, but I'm saying that I still see a world where the level of demand is still high enough that the level of supply can't really overwhelm it in the short term. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll see. I mean, clearly recently the supply has has overwhelmed the demand. Um, but you know, as time goes on, will that still be the case in an era where, A, the Fed is pivoting, right? Right now, the Fed is hawkish. They're talking hawkishly. So the demand for bonds is is negative, right? People are worried about rates going up. When people are eyeing a Fed rate cutting process, I do think that that bid underneath treasuries will come back to a degree. Uh, but I do think we are in a time where uh, the volatility within the treasury rates is actually becoming less than, than gold, for example. And gold's had a, had a, had a resurgence. And so uh, will more people look for a harder asset like gold in, in, in tough geopolitical times than they will treasuries? And I think that's what you're, you're moving to. You're seeing treasury or central banks around the world uh, buying up gold at a pretty high rate. The, the, the premium in Shanghai for gold is about 6% higher near record levels compared to what you're seeing in London. So clearly in the East, uh, the demand for gold is pretty high. And uh, we talked about how China is selling off treasuries in a material way. And so, uh, you know, and they're trying to support their currency. And so if uh, the global economy goes into some sort of a slowdown, uh, then obviously their business is going to slow and they're going to need to do that once more. So I think that's kind of the bigger risk around what's happening uh, in the uh, global bond markets. And even Ackman talks about the slowing economy. He says the economy is slowing faster than the recent data suggests. So that's another, uh, I think, data points that he's seeing that says, hey, I should take my trade off the table. Remember, these are hedge fund managers. They're trading. And so the question for you as an investor is, with everything you buy, is it a trade or is it a long-term investment? You have to have that time horizon lined up. All right, the next and best stock, we will look into the story set up by this headline. Three valuable lessons from the last bull market. The Federal Reserve is powerful but clumsy, and we, ex- and we experience a series of investment fails. But what else have we learned? That story tomorrow, but for now, I'm Justin Klein, ready to take your calls at 888-99-CHART. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. So as long as your questions involve the stock market or general investment topics and definitions, we set no limits. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Justin and I are ready. Are you? Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888-99-CHART. Hey, this is Justin Bill from Philadelphia. I want to call in about bonds. If I believe that the interest rate hikes are done um, and interest is either going to stay at the same level it is now or come lower uh, in the next uh, one, two, three years. 
Is it a smart strategy for me to purchase bonds now uh, with a, let's say, three to five year maturity date, get that coupon, but also at the same time get that possible appreciation when interest rates do finally start getting cut and the bonds rise, where I do have the potential to sell them off at that time and uh, and, and make some, uh, some profit there. Just want to get your thoughts on that. And I love what you guys do. Thanks a lot. Well, that is one way to play it, but you are only going out three to five years. That would still be relatively short term. There would still be some rally if you do get a drop in yields over the next uh, couple of years. But if you really want to play a drop in interest rates, you'd want to buy duration, longer dated bonds, 10 years, and more specifically, 30 years. If you want to get really aggressive, you would buy ones with, no coupon, right? The zero, uh, zeros is a good example. Z-R-O-Z is the PIMCO 25 plus year zero coupon U.S. Treasury index. And that's going to probably have the, the most duration risk in it. And therefore, if the rates come down more broadly, then that's going to get the best rally, although you won't get a coupon uh, from that. So maybe you do want the coupon. Maybe you just want the 30-year, maybe by the TLT. Uh, that would be the best way to get exposure, I think, to a drop in interest rates as a trade. Uh, Luke, anything to add there? Nope, nothing to add there. All right. Well, let's pivot over to talk about clean energy and in a lot of ways this ties in with those that higher interest rate talk and that's what's really been weighing on clean energy stocks even though the government is rolling out policies that should support the industry and looking past that you're seeing that the market doesn't care the iShares global clean energy etf is at its lowest level since july of 2020 down 32% this year. And these uh, this, it owns companies or holds companies like First Solar, Plug Power, Enphase Energy, Solar Edge Technologies. And Solar Edge is the worst performer on the year of the companies within the S&P 500. And so these sectors are very interest rate sensitive. And there's basically two sectors or two categories of clean energy. One are companies that deploy the infrastructure clean energy infrastructure and it's very capital intensive and when the cost of capital is higher suddenly the value of those projects becomes uh, it doesn't pencil out nearly as well so you're talking about wind turbine installation solar panels etc and then companies that are developing new technology within the space and a lot of those companies don't make money and once again as we said before companies that don't make money in this environment are going to continue to struggle so uh, that's what's really interesting here is that the higher cost of capital is overwhelming the tailwinds of the Inflation Reduction Act, Blue. Yeah, because when you think about what interest rates are doing to affect these companies, it happens on two fronts. There are projects they've already invested in and they've already capitalized to produce those projects. And but borrowed they, money for. Borrowed money for. So when they made that decision, they did it based on a calculation of discounted future cash flow. So that changes what a company is worth today because those cash flows are worth less in today's dollars. The other thing it does, and that's more specific to the new technology companies that you mentioned, is it makes investment in future projects, the hurdle of which you have to have positive NPV, so positive net present value, more cash coming in in today's dollars than what you're spending. It makes that hurdle higher as well. So really what this is saying is, 
for me, it looks at your investment horizon when you're talking about these companies because you do carry the legislative risk that maybe global governments are going to stray away from uh, moving towards uh, clean energy, which I don't think is going to be the case. And I don't know if you think that's the case. But if you have the ability to hang in for the long term, right, up into the 2030s when, when a lot of these projects are going to be coming due, this could provide a good buying opportunity for some of these companies. I think it could uh, if they are without much debt, but a lot of those names aren't really taking the dive. Uh, and a lot of those names that do have debt, they, in, they invested in these projects, like you said, penciling out low cost of capital. And now they can't go back and change what they, they got for those, uh, you know, the, the structure of those, those deals. So that's a huge issue. Um, and then, you know, I think it's very interesting. You know, we've been, we've been investing in clean energy projects now for what, 20 plus years? Governments around the world uh, in various forms. Um, and I believe it was in 1998, we were at uh, 82% of our grid was powered by fossil fuels. Now, after spending, I think we put about $6 trillion into the space, we're at 81%. So, you know, I think at some point you have to say, uh, are is this the only way forward and will you have to deploy something like nuclear and will more money more stimulus go towards uh, something like nuclear that could crowd out some of these investments as well and make those uh those green green energy innovations uh less profitable uh, i think that's another question to ask yourself because you know in even in europe company or uh, legislators are, are continue to push towards uh, green energy but that's not overwhelming the higher cost of capital. The, the higher cost of capital is the, the main culprit here. Now, there are other problems. Siemens Energy scrapped its profit outlook because they couldn't get enough components for its wind turbines. Uh, you had Vestas wind systems. They warned persistent supply chain disruptions will last through the rest of the year. So it's not just higher cost of capital as well. It's, it's, it's supply chains that are more diverse, you know, in, in, in an increasingly geopolitical uh fraught environment, it's more difficult to, to source these, uh, these products and get things in place. And so uh, there's a lot of factors weighing down the clean energy stocks. And I think longer term, I don't see that being a, I don't see that changing. Now, near term, this is kind of a duration trade in a way, if you want to buy them uh, for a rally in, in, in them uh, on lower rates. But I think longer term, I think there's, there's still some headwinds they're going to have to deal with. And if Governments embrace nuclear. I think that could change things in a big way. All right. Now, let me ask you real quick to register for the upcoming wealth webinar. It's on November 9th. Profit amidst chaos, strategic investing in a recession. It will be free over, and you can register over on our website, investtalk.com. And now let's swing back to the Invest Talk Voice Bank for another question from 888 chart Hey, Justin, this is Andrew from Atlanta. I'm trying to reach you or Luke or Steve. I'm looking at ticker symbol SNY. I own this stock. What do you think the outlook is for this going forward? Do you think I would be more profitable by shifting the funds from this stock and going into copper? I've probably got a couple of copper stocks. Both of them are around 3% of my total portfolio. What do you think about SNY? I appreciate your advice, and I'll listen to your answer on the show. Thank you. Y'all have a good evening. All right. Looking at Sanofi Aventis, and this is an ADR. They're out of France. Large company, $132 billion market cap, and it is a pharma name. 
And it is doing a much better than the broad healthcare space in general. Its relative strength is 87. And you have the IYH, the iShares US Healthcare, uh, down uh, at 56 relative strength. So it's doing much, much better. And that's because, well, earnings are supposed to come down 23% this year. It's back in line with kind of its long-term average, but there's no growth here in the business. And that's my big worry here, Luke, is you're talking about revenue growth and the low single digits and longer term. They made $3.16 pre-pandemic, and they're going to make three thirty-nine this year. Just not a whole lot of growth. It's supposed to be three eighty-nine next year. I guess that's a nice, nice bump up. Uh, do you think this is worthwhile, if, or do you think a copper exposure would be better? Well, as I always say, it's kind of difficult to know without the context of the entire portfolio and what his holdings are. Maybe potentially he's overweight to some of those material names. Maybe he's overweight to some pharmaceutical names. But I do tend to agree with you. There seem to be a lot of headwinds here. Yeah, the total revenue comes, 40% of total revenue comes from the United States, 25% from Europe. And then emerging markets represent the majority of the remainder of the revenue. So this is pretty strong exposure to those emerging markets. Uh, those emerging markets have a lot of growth in population. So uh, there's some tailwinds there. Maybe that's why they're doing a bit better than some of the other drug names. I'd really have to dig into the patent cliffs here and see if there's any major drivers of their profitability that's coming off patent. Uh, I don't see anything uh, straight ahead. Uh, let's see. I think that's an important point you just made, actually, which is not to say that you don't always make good points, but I think specifically with pharmaceutical companies, especially ones that are structured in this way and, and where the revenue comes from, a lot of their value depends on those patent cliffs. So although yeah. this is moving in a way that's different from the healthcare sector, it's also going to move very differently from other uh, pharmaceutical companies that have very different structures, very different products and different patents. Yeah. And usually the market's pricing that out. The, the, I would say the drug industry, the pharma industry is the one area most people get caught up in what we call value traps, where it looks like they're making a ton of money. It looks really cheap. What's happening is the market is pricing in that, that patent cliff going forward. And suddenly you are going to see a profit cliff and suddenly that cheap stock no longer looks nearly as profitable because their profits decline, you know, 30, 40% because of that. Um, now, I'm not seeing that here. I'm seeing the market keep the share price relatively high in a tougher market for uh, the the drug space. Uh, and so I, I see no reason to sell it. I don't think it's expensive. I think the technicals are fine. I like its geographic exposure where it's not too overexposed to the U.S. market and it has some exposure to the emerging markets. So I wouldn't be quick to jump off the train here. All right, let's go to Craig in Seattle. Let's talk about portfolio management. Hey, Justin. Uh, appreciate you taking my call. Um, so I have 100% equities across my uh, my brokerage account and my Roth IRAs and, and uh, pretty well diversified in terms of large value, small value, medium, mid value, and then international heavy lean toward value. But the more I'm looking at it, I thought I could simplify just looking at AVGE. And ABGV, uh, I like Avantis. I like uh, what they do. Um, and I thought about doing maybe 50% ABGE, 30% ABGV, and looking at AVMA uh, to add in some fixed income. But I really think I could get it down to three, but I think I may have some blind spots, and I was hoping for your take on it. 
All right, Lou, you're looking at AVGV. What was the other one? AVGE as my main holding, AVGV for the value tilt, and then uh, AVMA because that includes some bond funds and and, uh, a little less volatility. Okay. Uh, Well, the AVGE, that one is going to have a 23 basis point expense ratio. Let me see. It is leaning on the value side of the market. So that's kind of a positive. AVGV, a little bit more, actually more towards the mid cap. Uh, It has a good amount of foreign exposure, about 40% uh, foreign exposure. AVGE, 30% foreign exposure. I kind of like the mix of the AVGV a bit better. Luke, do you see anything that's popping out for you? Uh, Well, Avantis, I actually used to work with all of the portfolio managers over there. Um, So they manage their funds in a way similar to my old company, Dimensional Fund Advisors, but they take more of a profitability tilt, which I like in their mutual funds. So I think both of these funds are good ways to go uh, to get kind of broader holdings on, on the value space, but also the prof space. Yeah, I mean they're 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 fine uh, funds. Remember, they are funds of funds. So, for example, AVGV owns the Avantis U.S. Large Cap Value ETF, then a little bit of small cap, a little bit of international emerging market, and then international small cap as well. So, you're getting very good broad diversification uh, for what you're what you're looking at. And let me look at the price here. I want to dig into that a little bit more. Yeah, net expense ratio about 26 basis points. So if you don't want to do a whole lot of work and you want Avantis to do that work for you with a prof tilt, like Luke said, I don't think it's a, a bad way to go. Thanks for Hey, I really call. appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah, no problem. Now, we're almost through October, which means the fourth quarter is moving fast. And Steve, I've been telling you for a while that we are in this new market regime. And serious investors need to adjust to higher interest rates, higher inflation, tougher geopolitical environments. And that means the playbook of the 2010s needs to be ripped up. You need to look back at history, look at uh, periods of higher interest rates, higher higher inflation, which were 50s, 60s, 70s, that era, and it will form better asset allocation. And so if you need to understand your asset allocation, give a, a broad sense of where you're at and whether you are aligned with the current market environment. I encourage you to reach out to myself or Steve at our company, KPP Financial, where we provide unbiased but guidance both on and off air. We practice parallel investing, which means we invest right alongside our clients. So I encourage you to reach out and schedule a time with me through our website, investtalk.com. Just click on the portfolio view button in the top right-hand side of the screen. Or you can call our office in Irvine, California at 800 557 Five four six one. The sooner you reach out to us, the sooner we can analyze that portfolio and get it optimized. All right, this is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero, and we have one goal each and every weekday, and that's to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So get your questions in now at eight 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 ninety nine chart. Invest Talk is always made better when our listeners contribute their questions. So tell your friends and family members they can interact in real time with Steve Peasley and Justin Klein during the Invest Talk live stream program between 4 and 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Or they can leave their questions anytime 24 7 in the Invest Talk voice bank. 888 99 Chart. 
go to Bill in Northern California. Let's talk about T. Rowe Price Group. Hey, guys. Um, yeah, you know, I have some of this, and, you know, I, I thought maybe I, you know, I'd get a little bit more. It seems like, you know, the time to buy it is when the price is lower. But, you know, I wish I had sold some when it was when it peaked out in the summer, you know, and then I could have bought it back down here. But, but I, I own a fair position, but not oversized or anything. And uh, I just okay. like, you know, like in the next few years, their profitability, their profit margins versus their payout ratio on the dividends and just their general outlook, not necessarily in the next eight months, but, you know, say in the next three or four years as a business. Well, this is a, this is T. Rowe Price and they basically offer mutual funds and, in an era where more money, more and more money is flowing towards index funds, obviously money is flowing out of these more active funds. And so what this is, is a, it has a longer term headwinds, uh, but it's still a good business, means it has good cash flow, et cetera. But it's highly correlated with the overall, un, overla- overall asset values. And so asset values since the beginning of last year both on equities and bonds have come down in a big, big way. And so have this, so has the stock. So the technicals are, are very poor uh, because of that. And I probably would just sell it. Now, is this the best time to sell it? Probably not. You probably get a rally into next, into the end of the year. Uh, and I would sell it into that. But uh, Luke, I mean, do you think it's cheap enough considering the, the headwinds going forward? Well, it looks cheap relative to its five-year average, but I think something that is an issue for me with any of these asset managers is just the overall trend to fee compression. Mm -hmm. And so you're also going to be pretty dependent on how the market performs as well, right? Because the assets are based upon market performance. So Mm -hmm. if they're investing in stocks, stock price goes down, asset level goes down, fees, uh, fee revenue goes down as well. So if you expect the market to perform well in the future, maybe better than most people expect, and you don't expect fees to drop as much, there to not be as much fee compression, then it could be a good investment. But I tend to agree with you. Any of these asset managers is not something I want to allocate more to at the moment. Yeah. Earnings this year is supposed to drop 11%. And those obviously is prices of assets go down, those uh, estimates continue to go down as well. And if you look at the cash dividend payout ratio, it's now at 86%. Now, the good thing is they don't have any debt on their balance sheet, and they're using that free cash flow to buy back shares, basically. But uh, I don't think there's much room for that that, that dividend to go up uh, and could eventually get cut. So I, I would just move on. Not a name I would be owning. All right, lastly, let's talk a little bit about the EV market. And GM is abandoning its self-imposed target to build 400,000 electric vehicles by middle of next year. And this is all because of waning demand for EVs more generally. And Tesla and Ford have recently flagged that, hey, demand for EVs and the willingness for consumers to pay the premium for them over traditional models is starting to wane. So, Luke, is this the sign that this massive move in the car market towards EVs is way ahead of itself? Well, it could be. You have to remember that a lot of these companies banked their future on transitioning to EVs in the next 10 years. And Mm -hmm. that was before a rising rate environment with the inflation that we saw. So these already expensive cars 
remember EV cost is what the average EV is $60,000 or something like that, which is more expensive than a gas car and even more expensive when you consider the cost of financing today. So I think that just added another layer of headwinds for something that's already expensive to make and already expensive to sell. Yeah. And, you know, the tests of the world and the early demand for EVs were, were for people that made a lot of money, right? They could afford a $100,000 car, $150,000 car, and it was the cool thing to do. But as to maintain that growth, eventually you run out of wealthy people who uh, want to, in some ways, virtue signal. And now it's all about, you know, whether those middle American uh, consumers can actually afford a a regular price car. Uh, and these aren't regular price cars, like you said, uh, $60,000 on average. And I remember a stat I heard a while ago, it's that for every $5,000 of an MSRP a car goes up, the buyer pool in America cuts in half once you get over like the 30,000 mark. So you can see that that price pressure is really starting to, to bite. Um, and, you know, so far it hasn't really hurt the overall business of cars because there's still a lot of demand, but clearly the demand for EVs, uh, the, the growth of demand is slowing in a large way. And I, I think this is, I think a lot of them are starting to second guess it that, hey, you have to still hold on to a portion of your uh, traditional internal combustion engine production. Otherwise, you might get left out in the cold. All right. I'm Justin Klein. With Luke Guerrero, that completes another Invest Talk program. Steve, Luke, and I thank you for listening, and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Be sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. And now we're over the 56.4 million download marks since it all began. Keep on climbing, and it's all thanks to you. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm, which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president, and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening, and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.